Hey, welcome back to the Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast. This is part two of our coverage of Final Fantasy VII Remakes Chapter 5. We just covered the equivalent content in Final Fantasy VII Original, and now we're circling back to the rest of the chapter as it's played out a remake. Catching you up here, Cloud, Tifa, and Barrett are taking the train out of the Sector 7 slums to the Sector 5 plate to bomb the Sector 5 reactor. Let's see how that goes. Back to remake. Back to remake. Let's go. So it's Cloud that cools down Barrett in remake, not Tifa. But once we do cool down Barrett and he does the little chime thing, we do speak with Tifa and she she has the emergency ID discussion with us. Partway through, we learn that the ID checkpoint is sooner than we expect and we're on high alert again. Shinra is aware of our presence and instead of doing a lockdown, what happens is is that little crab-like four-legged green floating battle bots crash through the windows of the train car we're in and we do battle with these. Now there is a ticking uh, countdown that happens as well when we do these battles, but these are proper battles. We're not just uh, racing out of out of train cars. They're called slug rays and if you've got lightning equipped, you're going to take them out pretty easily. There's a lot of mechanical enemies that you fight in this chapter and so it's a good idea to have them equipped i think i had them on at least two of my three party members we only have two party members for the time being but anyways tifa hustles everyone out of the second car as the slug rays uh, swarm us and the shinra middle manager probably realizes that we are avalanche by now and tifa shoves him out of the car and she says she doesn't want anyone to get hurt and so i feel like in this moment tifa is able to express her perspective on how avalanche should conduct themselves because if you remember you know she doesn't want collateral damage we don't want to be killing people in the wake of our mission and in this Example, we sort of saved the middle manager's life, maybe other people as well. And Tifa gets to feel good about that because now that she's here on the mission, although she might have been reluctant to be part of the mission in the first place, she's here to kind of smooth things over and reduce the amount of collateral damage we might be responsible for. And it's interesting the context that if your train cars seem to have avalanche members on it, no one on it is safe. The regular ass people who work for your own company their lives are in danger now because they they might just purge the whole fucking thing to get rid of some avalanche members. So that's kind of scary when you think about it. And I wonder if the Shinra middle manager, as much as he loves and simps for his company, like, does he have that awareness in this moment that like, oh, shit, I might get killed by the people I work for? Oh, that's interesting. Who's responsible for the collateral damage? Is it Shinra or is it avalanche? Exactly. Funny. Interesting thought. So we leap out of the train car. Oh, hold on here. Biggs isn't here. Biggs is not on the train. Yeah. In remake. None of them are. Oh, shit. Yeah. As was was discussed in chapter four, you met up with Biggs kind of the night before. He was, uh, he was kind of a nervous wreck because it was his job to go ahead and set everything up for the operation and uh so that's his role wedge uh he was coughing obviously so he can't go and jesse got slammed by ghosts so none of them are here whereas uh in og they were all here Mm -hmm. and beard describes something called plan e so if plan a was when everything was going precisely as planned Plan B will be one iteration away from that. Eventually you get to plan E, so which Cloud doesn't know what that means exactly, and I don't either, but we're going to follow it. And to begin with that, we have to go walking down this train tunnel. It's almost like Barrett loves the fact that he's got 
you know, a half dozen plans at the ready for his operations. And um, it kind of goes back to the previous chapter, what Wedge wanted us to go check on Biggs and show him support and everything, because he views Biggs as being like crippled by over worrying and like obsessing about every little thing that could go wrong. So it's almost like uh, the multiple plans is part of accommodating for Biggs needing to do that. Mm. And so Barrett loves it. Wedge finds it distracting or almost like crippling in a way. And, you know, honestly, we Wedge is kind of a wing it kind of guy. Like, hey, I got the dog whistle. I'll just blow it. And it's like, <laughs> you didn't really think this through, did you, Wedge? <laughs> yeah. So we race down the corkscrew tunnel. Team slays a few more slug rays and we stop at... Hold on here. It's it's in this sequence where we have our first three-person party. Is that right, Nate? I believe so, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. You can swap between them all, set them up as you please. You got a full party now. There's a vending machine nearby and a bench that you can rest at. And this vending machine is loaded with accessories that I haven't seen yet. And there's like power wrist guards that give you strength, bulletproof vests that give you defense, earrings that give you magic power, talisman which gives you spirit. And I had to look that up because some of these attributes have different definitions in different games, although they are themselves tropes. Tropes that you see in all video games, it's just that the definitions and the and the algorithms thereof are tend to be different. Spirit is magic defense, fair enough. And there's also revival rings. We pass a certain point and then we swap to a cutscene with Heidegger. He's watching us from a video camera. And he asks, where's the third sewer rat? Oh, excuse me. Hold on here. No, those few fights that we had just now were only with Cloud and Tifa. We've, we are catching up to Barrett. Okay, yeah, I, I do remember a segment where he's behind a wall, but it's like a... It's like a fenced wall. And so you can see him shooting mm -hmm. at targets and like screaming and doing, doing Barrett shit, you know, and we're like, we got to get to him. Uh, so yeah, there is a segment where you're separated. Mm -hmm. But we don't know that until we have this funny Heidegger sequence. He's sitting at this command center, lots of video screens. He's got flunkies doing his bidding for him, running errands, getting him reports, things like that. And what he says is, where's the third sewer rat? In custody, sir, says one of the officers. And he says, release him. And he does a growly kind of laugh. And the sense that we get is that he's setting another trap for us. And he's aware that the bombing mission is underway. Or at least we're trying to get to Sector 5. When we do catch up to Barrett, like you said, he's taking out more slug rays and other security forces. And when everything kind of cools down, we look at a subway map and... He explains what plan E is. So what the plan is now is we go down a tunnel, cross to another train line tunnel, and we'll follow that to the Sector 5 reactor, or so we think. Once we do that, another Heidegger scene. Heidegger hops in with these funny scenes three or four times in this chapter. This time he gets reports of Shinra forces casualties over the course of, of uh, Cloud and company, you know, cruising through this train tunnel. He says he doesn't care. Get more forces from other sectors if you need to. They're just pawns in a greater game. Casualty rate. You think I care about the casualty rate? They're pawns in a greater game. If your stock runs low, then go round up more from Sector 3 or wherever else. He's very pleased with himself. President Shinra is lucky to have someone like me at the helm of Shinra Public Safety. And maybe this is obvious, but when he says that with the sort of nonchalant attitude of 
expendable human lives, I realized that public safety is a euphemism for like the military forces. And that, that was probably pretty obvious to everybody else. And he is dressed up like a general anyways. So we're learning about how like bloodthirsty and ruthless this guy really is. When we're back to the team, we catch up to some graffiti on the wall. Biggs has left us coded messages in the subway tunnels to get us to where we need to go. We are to follow Stamp's nose. Remember Stamp? The analogy about, you know, being a good little doggy for Shinra. Well, he's a, he's propaganda for Shinra. It's a cartoon dog named Stamp, a sweet, smiley beagle with a green army helmet. This is Stamp. And following its nose is really an arrow pointing us which way to go, left, right, up, or down, to get us to the reactor. I don't know if Biggs is a skilled graffiti artist or if he's really just laying sticky paper on the walls because it looks like a giant sticker mm-hmm. uh, but <laughs> sure if this was final fantasy 13 this is where you would meet the like 15 year old cool looking graffiti artist wearing multicolored clothing and like having a catchphrase they drop of like let me think of one i can't i can't think of a good catchphrase but uh that'll do it you know, or something <laughs> stupid like that and they have to deliver it every three seconds and they have to give like one wink smiles and be all goofy you'd have to learn about how his brother and him were artists until shinra outlawed art and all this stuff but i i feel like we've moved on from some of that a little bit and the the story of stamp is much more concise and simple and gives greater context to barrett and i like that Mm-hmm. We don't need to know too much about how that thing got on the wall. In the next section of the train tunnel, we encounter were rats or were rats, like werewolves, were rats, fresh out of the Narsh mines of FF6. They're weak to ice, and eventually we run into a nest of them. But when they say a nest, I'm thinking they're talking about were rats, but it becomes quickly obvious that we're not actually talking about nests of were rats. We're talking about nests of gash trikes. Now, you remember there was an enemy in original called Grash Trikes. There's no R in gash trikes in remake here. And they're more menacing. They were quite diminutive in in uh, original, but in remake, they are six feet tall, three foot long sickle hands like a mantis, and they slide around on these on these snake-like uh, bottoms. They slash at you. They also spray sticky silk to slow you down. They're gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the environment reflects their presence too, the commentary on those nests. the There's a lot of webs everywhere. You got to kind of slice through them or yank them out of your way to progress through certain areas. Uh, the building materials and supplies down here are kind of disheveled and knocked about. There are eggs webbed onto walls and tucked into crevices and everything and so it seems like the the whole area here has been claimed by this monster barrett comments how it's probably the result of like mako leaking down below the plate and uh shinra just doesn't care about it and uh barrett gives the line don't blame the mako blame shinra and Cloud replies with like this observation of like, wow, that black and white world of yours, Barrett. And um, before this would have been a spot where they fought or they were arguing, but now they're just kind of rolling with each other's punches cordially. Like they have an understanding of each other better now. And so Barrett just replies with room for one more. That black and white world of yours. You like it, huh? You know there's room for one more. You're welcome, Cloud. Anytime you want to join up, 
I'll have you because you've you've now seen what I've seen. You're experiencing what I deal with every day. And so he's he's not going to preach to him that much anymore. He still preaches, but he, he doesn't need to preach as hard to Cloud. So that division between the two of them is slowly, slightly melting away. Um, I don't know if you felt that in the kind of exchanges here. Yeah, I do. And I, and I like that sort of banter, too. I like that we are ideologically different and kind of testing each other's boundaries. We're not completely hunky-dory. I'm reminded of, I feel like I talked about this before, but I'm reminded of um, how in Star Wars A New Hope, the way in which all the characters talk to one another in tense situations, they are at each other's throats, or they're just about at each other's throats constantly. When they rescue the princess, when they're in the trash compactor, when they're racing through the tunnels, they're constantly berating and belittling and accusing people of making dumb decisions all the time. It's not just that Princess Leia's a sassy pants, they're all doing it. Mm -hmm. And I get a sense of that here. So, so I really like that where when things are heated up, they lose their composure or they're, they're kind of testing one another with their, based on their ideological positions. That is pretty neat. Moving along here, we fight a few gash trike camps and eventually come up to an elite, a queen gash trike larger than the others. And she's got um, some of the regular guys around uh, with her as well. Um, this fight wasn't too hard for me. Basically, I just build up AT bars by fighting the ads. I'll just I'll just call them and uh, and then expend them on the on the queen. Yeah, and I think during this fight, she is doing something to pop eggs and spawn ads, but they're pretty quickly dispatched. They're kind of the small ones that we remember from OG, if I remember correctly. And I was mainly just killing all the targets via Cloud's triple strike, jumping back and forth between targets. So uh, yeah, didn't have much trouble with this one either. Excellent. Following that, we run into camps of flamethrower guys. Flamed, what were they called? Fucking uh, flame troopers. If you assess them, they are weak to flame. And if you uh, attack them from the rear, you can make their tanks explode and they'll deal extra damage to themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a fun thing. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because previously the party had commented how like Shinra is not going to do anything about the monster infestation. Eventually one of these queen gash trikes is going to derail a train or something and Shinra won't care. But the, the presence of these flame troopers actually directly contradicts that sentiment because they are down here burning out these nests, trying to get rid of these things, and fire is apparently the solution. So Shinra is kind of taking the initiative here to get rid of these things, but it's the soldiers that treat this job as like a shit assignment that they don't want to leave. And one of them, I think, even says something along those lines and is like, just do just do a quick pass and we'll get out of here or something. And uh, it's that same kind of entitled disconcerting tone that is often seen in our own real life low rank military personnel and uh it's not like i don't hear about those types of people every single day from a certain someone in my life <laughs> so uh I, i'm uh I believe it. I, I feel it of, you know, Shinra could push as hard as they want to get rid of this issue, but you got to have the right people in place. You got to have somebody that the buck stops with them and it actually gets taken care of. And it seems like that's not the case here. We beat the flame troopers. We kind of progress through the kind of the extent of the um, corkscrew tunnel, kind of where it's ending. And there is a rail yard nearby and it obviously this is new to remake arriving at this location. 
And um, this rail yard completely operates out of the central pillar. It connects, it starts here and then it connects to all the, like, I, again, we talked about this before. I don't know what you actually call them, but like the switch boards or the, the, the lines that trains use to switch to mm. get to where they're going. Uh, there's a facility here for that. This explains kind of the abandonment of the rail yard in old sector seven, which was probably the main one that everybody used back when the ground floor, as we call it, was where everyone lived before the existence of Midgar. It's because um, if you remember, there's this dialogue about how all the towns used to have names. This is where people used to live. And then Midgar was built and everything just went to shit below. So, um, you know, that that train graveyard we've talked about a couple times here that we've seen probably became derelict because, well, now we have the new fancy one in the, the central pillar. And um, I just I love that seven remake does a lot of this world building just via context of those unanswered questions you have from the original that you're just like you don't really need to think about it there isn't like anything glaring but just so many layered world answers to things it's like oh okay yeah i get it that's why nobody uses the train station or not the train station but the rail yard below because there's there's one here. Closer to operations. Mm. When we get to the rail yard, we cut back to Heidegger. I believe it's the last time. Hold on. Let me, am I going to eat my words? No, it's not the last time. He's chewing out a security guy, giving him a report on Avalanche's combat capabilities. Holy shit, he's got an assess material too. God damn it, Chadley. <laughs> I told you, Chadley's a double agent. Not in, the, not in a good way. He did say that. Of course, Heidegger says we must crush them thoroughly and mercilessly, but I'm not very convinced because he's had the chance to do that several times already. He's just playing with us like a cat plays with a mouse or, I don't know, pick your analogy. He delivers a line to one of them. Uh, have you forgotten the war with Utai? An enemy spared is an enemy who will repay your kindness with blood. Have you already forgotten the war with Wutai? An enemy spared is an enemy who will repay your kindness with blood. We must crush them thoroughly and completely, without hesitation or mercy. And so we're getting the sense that his previous job probably was, like you said, that, that general. He was a warmonger. And now that there is no war, what do you do with this guy? You give him a you give him a job as a public security or, you know, you, you put him somewhere where those talents won't go to waste or you give him a job where you keep him busy so that he doesn't become a, a malcontent. It starts raising hell for some other cause somewhere, uh, you know, like he, he's under the president's thumb in this position. And that's that's better than him being cut loose. He's repositioned with a nice little corporate job in peacetime, but he still wears the effects of a, a leader at wartime. And that statement about the Wutai troops, it kind of gives a, you know, we, we envision Shinra as this ruthless terrible evil force but he says that the uh the enemies he faced in wu time were people who repaid kindness with blood so i don't know if that's just like a a line like um 
you know, to instill fear in his own forces? Or if I wonder, that's like a, something he has experienced of like, he tried to come to the table or he tried to like work things out and just, it, it ended up with blood on his hands because of it. I don't know if there's a bigger story that. No, he's making, he's, okay. you make excuses like that. Like very much like what Barrett said earlier about like, it forced my hand. Well, you know, Wu Tai forces resisted. So it forced his hand to slaughter them all, which reminds me, Nate, um, crisis core goes to Wu Tai, right? Yes, it's kind of the tail end of that whole... Uh, Is Heidegger in the game? Don't remember, actually. I'll have to look into that. I, okay. I'm not registering that he's in the game in my memory banks, but I could be wrong. I need to, you know, I need to revisit it, too. I have all of the, the broad strokes, but I'm missing some of those finer details. That's fine. I just wondered. Sure. According to FinalFantasy.Fandom.com, Heidegger is not in Crisis Core, but he does inherit the role of being the head of the organization after the previous head of Soldier, this guy named Lazard Deusericus, splits from Shinra. Now this begs the question, is Heidegger still head of Soldier? in the events of remake and original, and I don't really know what that answer is. Now, we do know that he is head of public safety, which is a euphemism for the Shinra private military force, and Soldier is a major component of that, but how hands-on he is with the Soldier program right now is unclear. He doesn't talk about the Soldier program in any sort of administrative way that we've seen so far. We just don't know. This whole plan where they're kind of like assessing battle data and releasing people and testing the waters and like uh, Heidegger has this whole thing under control. He's working on some greater scheme going on here and uh, even their failures are like laying the the brick road to some greater overarching success. I kind of remember Heidegger and Scarlet and all those contemporaries kind of to be bumbling idiots in original. <laughs> like the, the space guy was this fat loser. Oh, Palmer. Yeah, yeah. Heidegger was always failing. Scarlet was just seen as like the token hot girl for the president and like could literally only slap people. <laughs> But, you know, they're all part of this corporation. So failing up is what people do there. Uh, that's the way it goes. And it's not until somebody else kind of enters the picture that they all get called out on how incompetent they all are. And so, you know, that's something where this feels different than OG Heidegger. Like, yes, he's ruthless in both games, but he seems capable here whereas in the other ones he's just kind of a everything he tries to do in og is kind of sucks i don't know did you get that feeling at all or am i projecting with that one yeah i do because because he keeps upping the ante and then we keep foiling him now that i think about it i wonder if he's kind of like uh the ramses <laughs> of ff7 less tragic less relatable but yeah i don't know if we get some deeper deeper sense of if if remake does the expansion on Heidegger like it does on everyone else, mm -hmm. you know. But yeah, it's interesting getting these scenes. It, it adds some some questions where we didn't have all we had was just running down a hallway before. He compels his henchmen to release the prototype immediately. And they're doing this probably to save their bacon because as we've established in previous scenes with Heidegger in this control room in this chapter, he could expend them as he pleases at any moment under clouds crushing blows, right? I think 
there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship going on here of Shinra wants Avalanche to exist. We we kind of can infer that from all of the shitty things they're doing behind the scenes, like blowing up their own reactor. If your own reactor just blows up, who do you blame? If you don't have an avalanche lurking in the shadows. So you do want to get your wins in so that you can tell the people you're doing something, but you don't want to completely eradicate them. You you want to have that, that villain always lurking in the shadows because that's what enables you to get the big bucks. You know, you need an enemy out there. I can get behind that. There's a symbiosis between the two groups. We don't feel that sense in original. This is a function of remake. Yes, definitely. Back at the train yard, security is much thicker here. More flame troopers, stationary security launchers, which are analogs to the the enemies in original that we described earlier. Um, when you assess them, their stagger gauge may only increase through lightning and non-elemental damage. And then in a break room or a side room like that, locker room, there's a vending machine. And from the vending machine, you can buy a pop song. Remember that you can buy pop songs. Nate likes the, the chocobo <laughs> one that I find repellent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but this one is <laughs> a song about Stamp. This is not from the original uh, soundtrack. Oh, yeah. This is an all new song and it's got vocals in it. And it's a propaganda song about Stamp, the dog. It kind of sounds like the Carpenters mixed with a little bit of electronica. Um, I went ahead and listened to the full track on YouTube a few days ago, and it's sweet, it's pop, it is catchy, and it feels nefarious because we know that Stamp is a rhetorical tool, and so too is this song, although it is kind of a fun thing to listen to. Does it have the victory fanfare in it? And that's the in-world explanation of Barrett's obsession with the tune? I would love to tell you yes, but I didn't hear it in there. Oh, bummer. Because then there's this whole context of he's like tongue-in-cheek singing the stamp theme as an insult almost of like, Mm -hmm. I'm the one winning here now, not you. I like the idea of Shinra co-opting the Final Fantasy uh, battle success jam. And then us co-opting it back. Right. Cloud's new theme is the Shinra March. Oh, right. Boss time. We're just walking these hallways. There's crates. There's, you know, same environment. And then all of a sudden you you enter a room where you're like, oh, I think I'm in a boss room. You get that creeping feeling. Yeah. It's like this room's bigger than these others. Bigger than the others. And there's things to hide behind. And I didn't know train yards had an amphitheater in them exactly and uh then you look over in the corner and it's like oh oh yeah that's that deactivated uh gundam in the corner <laughs> but uh yes there is a boss fight coming get back and uh he's identified as the crab warden so we had the scorpion and now we have the crab warden i identified him as a beetle when i first saw him but Mm. crab works too you know there's a long legacy of uh crab battles in gaming i might have to link you the uh giant enemy crab at the introduction of the playstation 3 uh there was a when the console was announced, they were they were showing how in I think as Genji was the name of the game. Um, They're talking about how the game featured real battles from historical Japan. And then like a moment later, the dude is just like 
waylaid by a massive crab and then it's like and here we have a giant enemy crab and i was like everybody's just like wait what the fuck uh genji 2 is an ashen game which is based on japanese history the um stages of the game will also be based on famous battles which took actually took place in ancient japan so here's this giant enemy crab you got giant crabs in japan what uh, so yeah, here we have a mechanized version of the giant enemy crab and, uh, he's, um, he's, uh, he's fun. You know, he's got some, he's got some sauce to him. He's got five targets. There's the main hull and then four stubby legs. Barrett says something like focus the legs and, you know, common video gamer sense. If you played a couple RPGs, you probably know that maybe you should pay attention to the auxiliary targets and maybe not the main one when you first encounter mm -hmm. a boss. Good luck killing the dragon tank by going head first, for example. So its ability is it stomps around itself. It wants to dive out of the way when it does a big stomping around itself. It has a missile barrage. What I like to block and, and earn a lot of blocking ATB when that happens. It's got a flamethrower ability and more abilities in phases two and three. I'll get to them when we get to phase uh, to those phases. Anyways, when I on phase one, what I did first is I destroyed the back two legs and that staggered him and it revealed a sixth target called a generator to focus and that's when I expended all of my all of my ATBs on special abilities or lightning because uh, mechanical foes are vulnerable to lightning and like I said I think I had two folks that had lightning material and then on phase two that summoning uh, channeling bar starts growing and you go oh my goodness I'm probably gonna be able to summon if pretty soon and so as the bar is filling, I'm knocking out the next two legs, and then I, I want to use uh, Ifrit for when the generator shows up again, or at least I'm expecting it to. I don't know if it will at the time. But he's got new abilities now. Wildfire, where he throws these large circles of flame on the ground, and if you played an MMO before, or any other, I don't know, action RPG, it's a don't stand in the, don't stand in the fire. That's, that's a, that's a joke, right? And, and wow. And there's actually achievements, um, there's like rank seven or uh, I maybe it's even higher now, but there's an achievement of didn't stand in the fire seven of like a, a complex boss that basically all their abilities are just putting shit on the floor. Is that Deathwing? Something like that, but they've they've carried on the joke through every expansion of having a version of that achievement somewhere in the in each expansion since they introduced the the original don't stand in the fire achievement. If you stand in the fire, you take damage and you die. Get out of the fire. Mm -hmm. Don't stand in the stupid. What's up? Post-production Nate here. The achievement in question that I'm alluding to is actually called Ready for Rating 8. Yes, there are eight of them, and they have put one in every expansion. Since it was introduced in World of Warcraft Cataclysm, the one with Deathwing, Tyler was correct. Ready for rating eight? Has you defeat Forge Master Gorik without being struck by Forge Storm, Forge Fire, Blazing Eruptions, or another player's Blazing Aegis, or the final slam of heated swings in a mythic difficulty dungeon. That's a lot. That's a lot to avoid. And the joke of not standing in the fire is literally true because that's all this guy does is put fire everywhere in this fight that all means nothing to anyone out there who isn't a wow player but now you have a little bit better of an idea of what we're talking about officially it also has a charge ability well it'll just it'll just rocket across the room and, and ram somebody 
does a good amount of damage. So anyways, um, we do pop the other two legs. I'm, I'm going through what my battle was like. Nate, you're invited to jump in about if you remember what your fighting was like, but I kind of like to give the play-by-play person. Yeah, I think we're in the same boat here. Same stuff. Ifrit showed up. Bada bing. All right. Bada bing, bada boom. I don't. I bet Cloud didn't die as soon as you summoned him, like I did. Uh, I was. I had some low moments, but I think I was mostly all right on this. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly had a much harder time with the flamethrower guys and the rockets. Just like somebody getting dogpiled immediately, and then I'm constantly playing recovery. So no kidding. Previous fight, not this one, but uh, this one I didn't really had trouble with. Yeah. Phase three threw me for a loop because Cloud died right away. I forget what it was exactly. And as you know in RPGs, when someone dies, you have to take two turns to get them in a good spot. It isn't enough to just res them. You need to build their health up again, and that's the punishment you've earned for having died. It takes more than one turn, one more than one action to get someone in a good spot. And I was playing that game over and over again in Phase 3. There's more shit on the ground, there's more don't stand in the stupid, and I've got people dying all the time. And eventually I finally got people in a good spot and we were able to take the enemy out, but he's got an extra pilot target uh, at phase three. Oh, and another ability too called, what was it called? Surge, where he electrifies the rails on the floor. And so um, instead of avoiding circles of fire on the ground, you need to avoid the rows of electrified rail lines before they become uh, electrified. Eventually I got a handle on all of the damage and somehow got enough magic to cast a few more lightnings and bring the pilot target down. Tifa gets the final blow in with her somersault limit break and it's all over for the crab warden. Rumples to the ground in a heap of metal. Mm-hmm. I don't even regis- remember registering a phase three because Ifrit just kind of started losing his shit on him and that maybe I summoned my Ifrit later. Oh, good idea. Hmm. And that's why the final phase was just me kind of dogpiling on him. So, yeah, a little bit different on my part, but we mostly covered all the bases on how that would break down. But, yeah, it was a good it was a good boss, and it felt like a boss, not like that stupid ghost outside the bar. This was a, uh, the music shifted. He has his own variation of the battle theme. It's swelled with each phase, and then you get that triumphant delivery of a death sequence as he's crumpling to the ground and your party's regathering themselves oh and what i'll say is you know we talked about the music in og completely different throughout all of remake the music here i can't really put my finger on it but it sounds very similar to a track from final fantasy 13 or or just in the spirit of something you'd hear in final fantasy 13 of like uh a lot more ambient kind of decorative tracks in exploration in that game where you don't really have these melodies you're memorizing or that are like getting pounded into your head the way those uh that little jingle from the og track does and so like i can't hum the music going on in this game at all because it's just kind of there it's not it's good it's giving me the vibes i would expect from these action-packed sequences but it's it's just not it doesn't stay on the tip of your brain the way the old music does i don't know if you feel the same way or not um i don't remember what the music was like exactly exactly well yeah that's your point that's your point isn't it nate ha you remember og's music for sure 
post-production Nate here again. A second post-production from me. I cared that much about this episode being correct. And you know what? I was able to put my finger on it after we recorded. My mind was correct in making the connection to Final Fantasy XIII because the composer of the track in question as you're running down the halls of the corkscrew tunnel is composed by none other than Masashi Hamauzu, who is a longtime composer for the Final Fantasy series. Over 10 years now, he was also the main composer for Final Fantasy XIII. His songs all sound a little bit similar, and that's not to knock his creativity. He's very creative. He has a very wide range of works, but I can always tell it's him in the back of my mind when he's putting out his tracks. Final Fantasy VII Remake has a ensemble of legacy series composers contributing to this game. So it's not just Uematsu who did the original Final Fantasy VII soundtrack. They pulled in a lot of other composers from other titles throughout the series to contribute to the new shit. I enjoyed the track. It's good. But it is pretty ambient in comparison to what you're used to. That's all I have to say on that one. Later in our analysis comparison... I will give the ultimate example of a musical flub in this uh, retranslation of the game, but not here. We'll do it later. Not yet. So the gang takes a service hallway to the next location. Not going to spoil it for this episode. And that'll wrap up the chapter, but not before uh, we have another Heidegger scene. The last one, the fourth one. He's at his command station again. Lots of computer screens, you know, illuminating his face, and he goes, this won't do, and then a subordinate, well, what he says is that the feed cut when an anomaly happened during the test, and I feel like they're all just lying him to save their bacon, or I have misunderstood what the prototype is, and it's something else, and that the crab warden wasn't deployed in the, in the way that I thought it was. I'm not actually clear on that. Nate, do you have an opinion on that? When we ran into the crab warden, it was kind of this laying in a corner deactivated not active it wasn't like we were trudging down the hallway and he was like chasing after us Mm -hmm. and so there might be context of they're talking about a high-powered machine we're gonna run into maybe two chapters from now yeah the crab warden was not in og but they might be talking about a, a model that was in original Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, that's what I thought. But on the other hand, these henchmen have an incentive to bullshit Heidegger. Yes, exactly. So you're right. It's it's not clear. Are we talking about the crab? The crab seemed like something we just stumbled on, not like that was the plan. Right? Mm-hmm. So good call. I don't, I don't exactly know myself either. It's not clear. Anyways, uh, Heidegger gets a phone call. It's President Shinra. And what we hear Heidegger say is everything's fine, sir, but there's been a development. Yes. Understood, sir. End of scene. And that wraps up the chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The development is that Roche just, uh, ran over 70, <laughs> uh, <laughs> soldiers and they got to go on a recruiting drive. They do. Just kidding. That is not the development. <laughs> This mission appears to be multiple chapters long, so uh, we'll catch you next time where we'll talk about, I don't know, are we going to get to the reactor yet or what? Let's find out. Well, and to kind of get into that point is I didn't even realize I was in chapter six until I was looking at my save files. I thought I had to digest the whole next segment to get on the call with you here. And I was like, wait a minute. I finished chapter five. Great. All right. I'm done. I'm out.
Thanks for listening, everybody. The Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast is a production of Gunblade Guys. That's us, Tyler and Nate. Think about liking us, subscribing to us, five-starring us, writing a review about us, and telling a fellow game liker about us, too. Donating to Tyler's PS5 fun because he is <laughs> locked out of tons of incredible Final Fantasy entries on the horizon. I, uh, I, I, I have the money to buy one. I'm just choosing not to for the time being probably good probably good you can find us on youtube and twitch as gunblade guys and we also would like you to join us on discord with a link that you can find in our podcast description and if you feel like tipping us there's a link for you to do that too in that description as well and whatever you do don't email us at gunbladeguys at gmail.com i won't read it tyler won't read it you will be <laughs> the only one who has read the message that you typed I don't even know why we do this. Maybe what happened, maybe you make a t-shirt and like the one guy that like emails you wins the t-shirt. It's like a, it's like a reverse promotion. It's like a, like a, like a Willy Wonka trick. You're just encouraging them more. Don't eat the candy. Don't steal the candy. Don't steal the golden goose. Don't eat the blueberry. Don't jump into the chocolate river and don't email us at. <laughs> okay. Um. All right. Sayonara, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Peace out. Peace out. Bye-bye. I'll have to turn this fan off. Oh, good call. I got to turn, I got to turn Teddy down. Today we are wrapping up season four and we're going to try to get through chat. Excuse me. Cloud knows he can ask for the raise because he sees the depth. That's the, yeah. Tim with his HVAC business, he's going to be busting your down or <laughs> busting your down. God damn. That about wraps up uh, originals content for this chapter for chapter five, at least. Yep. No, that's not true. That's not true. All right, so we run down the trouble. Nate, before we begin, I actually want to circle back to one thing that I'll cut and paste uh, later. Uh, back uh, about the interaction with the Shinra middle manager. I'll make it quick. When, when Tifa interrupts Barrett and... No, excuse me. Uh, so, hold on. No, actually, no, I don't need to do that because this doesn't happen in original. It happens in remake. I'm get, I'm actually ahead of myself and I think I'm behind. When you think about it, and I wonder if the Shinra Minimum... Fuck, fuck that guy's name.